0: rest watch podcast i'm your host and producer nick patel a songwriter publisher and music professional alongside we have david lowry and chris castle david lowry is a platinum selling songwriter and performer for the band's cracker and Camper van beethoven he currently lectures music business students at the university of georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist chris castle is a music lawyer in austin texas where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights so welcome to series two of the auto Rights watch uh thank you to anyone who had listened to the first series um the first six episodes anyone who had rated the podcast on whatever platform that they're listening to i um, hope you guys enjoyed them and that you guys were able to join in online conversation do your own further research and just overall find these podcasts very interesting and educational um for series two we are going to go a bit more broader um the series one series one was very specific and deep into the weeds about the specific issues uh, going on in the music industry this series is more kind of geared towards the artists and the songwriters who might be listening um specifically today we're talking about record contracts and we will be touching on it from different perspectives um today we also have a guest called stephen carlisle and he is an entertainment lawyer and so in this podcast we have three different different perspectives uh, we have him being an entertainment lawyer we have david who's an artist and a songwriter and then you have me who is also a songwriter but in more experience with record contracts i do work for record label in the licensing sector so i do deal with a lot of record contracts um so we have three different perspectives here um and so for the artists who are listening, and even for anyone else who's listening, this is really geared towards explaining the things to look out for in these long contracts that are full of legal jargon and all of that. And the words record contracts is one of the most recognizable words about the music industry. Even people who aren't involved in the industry, they've heard of these words before. Even if they don't know what it entails, they know about record labels and artists and the deals that bind to them. Um, And as before, record contracts are deals that bind the record label and the artist. Record contracts are the very sought-after record deal that we hear about in movies and television shows. Every artist is out to get one, and that's when they quote-unquote make it big. In real life, a record contract is just a big legal document. It doesn't possess magical powers that make an artist big, although record contracts do supply the artist with possible resources they did not have access to before. Some examples include tour support, marketing, social media promotion, distribution, a whole team working behind you, and an illustrious artist advance. But this is a deal, right? So what defines the deal? What does the record label get from it? And why would they invest in an artist? What does the record label lose? Well, that's what this episode is all about. And as I mentioned before, we have our first guest of Series 2. Stephen Carlisle is the first Copyright Officer of Nova Southern University in Florida. He joined NSU after 26 years of private practice as an attorney in Florida specializing in copyright entertainment law. He is a former adjunct professor at both Florida Atlantic University's College of Arts and Letters and Florida International University's School of Law. Where he taught courses in copyright law and entertainment law. He is also a two time chair of the Florida Bar's entertainment, arts, and sports law section. He also writes articles for Nova Southern about current copyright issues. And if you're interested, I'll put them into the show notes. Uh, His most recent post was Who Owns Iron Man, Spider Man, and Daredevil? As a Marvel fan, I was very intrigued. (laughs) Um, And we can probably talk about that for another two hours. Um, But let's get into the conversation. Um, We'll have David, Steven, and I have a conversation about record contracts. So David and Steven, um, I actually realized while I was planning this episode, doing my usual host stuff, um, that we actually have very different perspectives about record contracts, Uh, because Steven has been working as an entertainment lawyer for some time, David has had some experience with record contracts as an artist, and I have my own experience with record contracts on the label side. Um, so this will be a very very cool conversation. Uh, this is of course the Artist Rights Watch, where we watch for Artist rights. So this will still be more geared towards the artist. Um, but David and Stephen, I wanted to talk about some of the core stances of a record contract. In record contracts, there are a lot of topics, and some greater than others. I personally seen record contracts with twenty pages and record contracts with one hundred and twenty pages, and so the nitty gritty stuff varies from contract to contract. Um, Often record contracts touch on defining parties, um, terms of ownership, territory, recording, grant of rights, royalties, mechanicals, slash control compositions, publishing, video, tour support, release, commitment, and delivery, or if you're in a band, you could have a leaving member clause. With that being said, we will just touch on the main ones to look out for specifically. I want to touch on three key clauses for artists, which is recording, royalties, and Mechanical. So to start, Steven, I want to talk about recording. Recording likely has multiple subsections like recording procedure and recording funds. Um, what do we typically see in this section?
1: Well, this is going to be probably one of your first paragraphs in your contract. <clears throat> and this is going to be uh, what you're supposed to deliver to the record company and how often you're supposed to deliver it. And this will, you know, be phrased in terms uh, at least in the past, mostly about albums and the problem that you have, and we're going to touch on this, you know, quite a few times is what, an, what constitutes an album is not defined until the definitions, which is sometimes 40 pages later. So if you go back to the definitions of what an album, they say, Oh, an album is 12 tracks uh, of a duration of not less than two minutes, 30 seconds a piece. You might find that. So, and then there is how often do you have to deliver these albums to the record company? And what you will most often encounter is that there is a term. Uh, The first term could encompass two albums, one album, or something more like three albums. But there will be additional terms, periods of time, that you might be asked to deliver product as an artist. And these are called options. Uh, I went back and looked at my last real full major contract, and it was actually a one album deal with four consecutive options. Now, at this point, you have to understand that all of the options are in the favor of the record company. They are under no obligation to exercise those options and to pay the advances which are going to be specified into the contract. Now, the one thing that you want to look at and be aware of, certainly as an artist, is how is the option exercised? It used to be that the record company had to tell you that it was optioning you and send you a notice that they were doing so. Well, guess what? On a couple of cases, they kind of forgot to send the notice to the artist and the artist jumped ship and went to another label and they weren't very happy about that. So typically you'll see one of two things, either that the option is deemed exercise, unless they tell you otherwise. Or if they forget to exercise the option, you, within a certain period of time, saying a month or two months, have to pop up and say, hey, record company, you forgot to pick up my option, which tells them either that they want to keep you or they don't want to keep you. Now, (coughs) again, excuse me. Now, within that is when you have to deliver the product to them. And just to show you how, really sometimes incomprehensible, these clauses are. I'm gonna read to you the actual clause from this contract, right? Um, The term commences on the first contract period ending the earlier of 12 months after the delivery to the record company of the last master recordings that are required to be delivered or nine months after the initial commercial release in the United States of the album required to be delivered here under in requirement in fulfillment of the minimum requiring organization, notwithstanding anything to contrary, the months of November and December shall not be included when computing the ending date of the initial period. Huh? <laughs> I love the I love the fourth quarter carve out. But yeah, we're we're not gonna
2: those aren't actual months. You
1: can't ask us to do any real hard work during November and December. November. Okay. Yeah. Even, even a few pages on in this contract is this language. No master recordings delivered here under shall have been recorded earlier than six months prior to the delivery of such master recordings to record company. Grantor shall not commence recording any album prior to 90 days after delivery to record company of master recordings constituting the immediately preceding album. Now, why is this in your recording contract? Well, we have two people to blame. The first person to blame is Frank Zappa brilliant, genius musician, cantankerous guy, okay? He, at one point, decided he was not really very happy with his record company, who will remain nameless. So, but he owed them three more albums. So, one day, he walked into the record company, said hello to the receptionist, plunked down three boxes of master tapes, and said, here you go, here are your albums you walked out the door and started his own record company okay so now here you're at the record company you've got 3 albums your artist has just bolted is now competing with you but he's fulfilled his obligation so that's why we have these shifting terms sometimes this sometimes that not during november and december can't have been recorded to you know to avoid the situation where the artist owes the record company more albums and simply does a tape okay second person who we have to blame for this situation is boston not the city the band okay their first album was an absolute smash huge out of the box success i think it sold 10 or 15 million copies or something like that amazing amazing success and of course if you're the record company what you want immediately is let's have a little bit, bit more of that mojo So unfortunately, the leader of the band, whose name was Tom Schultz, was a a scientific engineer and a bit of a mm, control freak, you could say that, or a perfectionist, you could say that too. I mean, he was prone to sitting with the master tapes and running a real-time analyzer to make sure that the pick scrapes down the neck of the guitar were absolutely perfectly in sync. This took some time. So between the first Boston album and the second Boston album, Don't Look Back, That took two years and the record company was not really very happy that it took two years. And Tom Schultz wasn't very happy because he says this record is only half finished. Okay. Don't look back is additionally a huge success, a huge seller. However, it now takes Boston and Tom Schultz in particular, six years to deliver the follow-up. And I forget what the follow-up is called. It took such a long time that Boston was sued by their record company for breach of contract for failing to deliver the required albums, okay? Ultimately, Boston prevailed in the uh, lawsuit because the jury reasoned, you can't rush artistic creativity. But that is why you see in these contracts these very amorphous, you gotta deliver it sometime between here and there, but not there, all right? So, so ideally, what is, what is a, I
2: know I have my experience with this, but ideally, what does a record label, you know, record labels expect their artists to deliver product on what sort of timetable? What, what would you
1: say that is? Generally around a year, and mm-hmm. it depends upon how successful the record is because you don't wanna necessarily flood the market with product. This is what kind of killed men at work. They were an Australian band and they got signed in America and they had two albums under their belt and the record company rather foolishly released the second album while the first one was still in the charts and it sort of cannibalized the sales and their next record kind of went nowhere. So if a record's a hit and is doing real well I think the record companies have learned that you don't want to compete with a hit product and you want to hold that whatever's coming next back a little bit but generally a year somewhere around a year so so basically this
2: complicated language that we see on you know it's it's sort of designed to space these albums out in such a way and not let anybody like say you know somebody like a frank zappa or I, i did something similar uh, but in a different way um, to, you know, to, to prevent like, you know, somewhat cantankerous or unhappy artists from basically pulling forward the end of the record contract. So you can move on to another one. Right. So, uh, so typically I know like uh, it's been a while since I've done a real traditional record deal, but I think the last one that I did was, uh, basically like for six albums where one was guaranteed and then you know that did pretty well so then they take the second option right and then uh but there was still you know four more after that that the record company could have optioned and then what happened was after that second album got my band broke up Is there something about that in record company contracts? I believe actually you mentioned something called
1: the leaving leaving. key member clause, The, the leaving member clause. Yes. What that will say is that if the band breaks up, each member of the band is going to be obligated to deliver the same amount of product as if they were still in the band at the record company's option, right? They might let somebody go because if they don't figure out that they're very valuable, but let's say it's the police. Obviously the person you want is Sting and Stuart and Andy can kind of go their own separate ways. And this is what happens. And they will have the option to pick up you as a member of the band to basically fulfill the the remainder of the contract as if you were the band. Right. Right. Okay. So my experience with
2: that was that I was picked up as the key member being one of the main songwriters um, and the singer. So I was picked up as the key member and that's just how I end up with my band Cracker. And the other folks were more or less let go, although one sort of subset went to a related label in some sort of arm's length deal or something like that. I'm not really sure exactly how that worked, right? So this was interesting because, and this is, and so these are clauses that I would have never really, even though my attorney at the time spoke great detail, what the clauses do, this is what this part does, multi sort of day phone call, like a, an hour phone call over multiple days, Uh, you know, explaining what the different things do just so I was clear on what was going on. And I'm thinking, key member clause, who cares about that, right? And then who cares about the details down there? So one of the things that happened to me was that the other members basically didn't get the the continuation of the recording contract. So they sort of were like, well, you know, that's that's unfair. You know, you get this recording contract and now the advances have escalated a little bit. You get in advance with every record and usually they escalate a little bit. Um, but that band, Camper Van Beethoven, had an unrecouped balance with the record company, right? And even though we would moderately successful, I think we had close to $400,000 unrecouped balance. So what typically happens in a situation
1: like that, Steve, Because I can tell you what happened with me. (laughs) It it generally depends. I, you know, I would have to go back and reread the defined points, but I think that moving forward, you're not necessarily saddled with the Unrecouped Balance. But certainly for those uh, albums that were delivered as a group, the group is going to remain subject to the Unrecouped Balance and will not see any... uh, you know, any further royalty payments until it's paid off. Um, Because it would sort of be unfair, let's say going forward, that for you to be swimming up the stream of the unrecouped balance of a band that no longer exists, nor for them to have added to their unrecouped balance, your advances, which may or may not be earned back. So I think at that point, the, the record company says, okay, we're gonna compartmentalize a little bit. This is over here, this is here, but just still lowest form around is that so what for, In my case, my case, it was sort of between the
2: two, right? It, and these are things you don't think that you need to think about as an artist, but life comes comes at you, you know, and there, here's your situation. I got one fifth of the debt, but transferred in, but then the contracts like, but then everything was separated. I got one fifth of the, there was like a couple of ways to do it. And that was, there was a, I can't even remember it now, but there were a couple ways it could be, have been figured. And that was the better way to do it according to the ways that it could be calculated in the contract. Believe it or not, taking one fifth of the debt forward into my new career uh, was, was what I had to do without leaving what I got with that leaving key member clause. So interesting.
0: So moving on, Steven, artist royalties is one of the ways that an artist makes money from their records, which is defined in the royalty section. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us anything about your experience with artist royalties clauses? And I'll add on two more questions, which is, are there any common misconceptions from the eyes of the artist? Is this one of the most negotiated sections of a record contract?
1: Well, the most common misconception that the have is they think they're actually going to get the royalty rate that's in the contract. And, <laughs> and that's not the case, as we shall see, because there are various ways that the record company can add things in which reduce the royalty rate, which are not apparent. And absolutely, of course, the royalty rate that the artist is gonna get is one of the most hotly negotiated points in the recording contract. And the question is on what and how much and how far it goes and what gets deducted and what doesn't get deducted. Generally, you know, it's, you know, in the age of streaming, a lot of this is, you know, sort of old hat. In the age of streaming, you know, record companies are generally treating streaming revenues as of one of two ways. One is that record companies will treat the uh, streaming royalties as a license. And generally, under terms of the contract, a license gets paid at 50% of net receipts. But here's where the definitions comes in. If, you know, I looked in this contract and I said, gee, what's, what's net receipts? And it said, the definition said, net receipts are gross receipts less cost. Clear as mud, right? You know, gross receipts, less cost. Well, what are the costs? Well, they don't tell you. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way as some other record companies treat uh, uh, streams as sales. So therefore you're looking at a income to the record company times the royalty rate plus some other factors. So that's, you know, that's, you know a complicating factor in that, you know, physical product is no longer the main method of delivering a record anymore. So the one thing that you have to look at, well, a couple of things, is, is the ro- royalty figured on wholesale or retail? Roughly f- going in, you figure that r- wholesale prices are half that of retail. So you might say, wow, 25% you know, royalty rate. Well, that's really sort of 12 and a half percent retail. So you have to know what you're figuring the royalty on. Also, you have to know whether this is an all-in royalty rate. In an all-in royalty rate, the artist is responsible for paying the royalties due to the producer of the record. So whatever the producer is getting paid, and you may not be subject to that negotiation, it comes out of your share. So if you know the you know the producer is getting two or three or even four percent, you know, that 12% royalty rate goes down accordingly. Okay. Now what is the royalty going to get charged on? Well, there's single records, there are albums, there are this, there are that, but here's where some of the carve outs start to happen. How many records are you going to get paid on? 100% of the records or something less than that. For years and years and years and years, there used to be a clause in the contract that used to say, we're going to pay you on 90% of sales. And why was that in there? Well, because the initial days of the record industry, you know, records were made out of hard plastic and roughly 10% broken shipment. So rather than having to figure that out, I said, we're just going to pay you on 90%. Well, you know, records haven't been made out of that for, you know, close to 40 years. So there's no reason for that clause to be in there. But you will find in there that there is a deduction for something called free goods. Now, the way that this is sold to you as an artist, well, this covers the records that we send to radio stations and other people to promote you and get your record on the air. And of course this sounds reasonable because doesn't every artist want their record on the radio? Sells a lot of records to do that, right? But what they don't tell you is that, especially in the area of physical product that this was also used as a method of discounting. Hey, listen, if you buy a hundred albums of this artist we'll throw in 10 free. Now, Have they thrown in 10 free? No, they sold 110 at a reduced cost. But on your ledger sheet, that will show up as 10 albums given away free that you're not going to get paid for because it's free goods. So what this really is, is sort of a method of subsidizing uh, the record company's um, discount processes. And in the contract that I looked at, It doesn't even say that. It says we can deduct up to 15 percent of albums in respect to free goods. Now, the way that you battle this particular clause is you say, I have no problem with you giving away records to radio stations. But if the good is designed for resale, that was always the language I insisted on. If, the, if it's designed for resale, then you have to pay a full freight royalty on that thing that you're trying to tell me is a free good, all right? That's also true in granting mechanical licenses where they want an allowance for free goods. And I say, okay, to free goods, unless it's intended for resale, then it's a royalty bearing item. So that's-, that's a,
2: I, I, I wanna note one thing here that uh, uh, students that probably have been to record stores, but record stores are not, There's not as many of them as they used to be. And in particular, there aren't these really aggressive chain record stores. So the thing with what Steve's getting at here, the thing with free goods is that a lot of chain record stores would uh, in their deals, it would be like for every 12 albums we receive from you, we're gonna pay you on 10. We're gonna sell the other two and keep the money ourselves. I don't know if you were aware of this, but there are all kinds of weird chain deals like that. So, so what the artist is, what you were trying to do with, the, with your artist was basically say, okay, if you wanna make that deal with that record store that they get to sell those records and not pay royalties on it, that's on you, but not on me as the artist, correct? That's what you're trying to do. Correct.
1: Yeah. But, you know, these, these languages still persist, you know, like the thing about the only paying a 9% of records because 10% break. You know, these things get written into the contracts and they never get taken out again. And there's, you know, no real good reason for them to be so, which we, we shall see in the next section. Of course, then there is what they're going to reduce the royalty rate on because you will find, especially, now now this doesn't apply to digital products, but it certainly applies to physical product that there's this thing called the packaging deduction, also known as the container charge, because what they contend is the, the, the stuff that the CD or the album or whatever it comes in isn't music. So we shouldn't have to pay a royalty on stuff that's cardboard or plastic. So this is the all famous packaging deduction and container charge. And when CDs were highly in vogue, that packaging deduction was 25% off the retail price. So now you've got a royalty which is figured on the retail price, but immediately if the configuration in which the record is sold is a CD, 25% of that price has already been locked off for the packaging deduction. Okay. Who is responsible for that? Well, unfortunately Led Zeppelin probably. Uh, Led Zeppelin 3, when it came out in, in vinyl, had wheels and, you know, turning discs and things like that that you could use to manipulate it. Um, as, le- as late as in through the outdoor Led Zeppelin, uh, the inner sleeve looked blank white, but it was actually a hidden watercolor that if you put water on it, there was water in the drawings that you could use to color it in. And I only discovered it because I was working at a record store at the time and I accidentally spilled water on it and all these colors came up. Now, what did that cost? Right. What did that cost the record company to do that? Uh, the other guilty parties, probably Chicago, again, the band, not the town, um, whose early works were festooned with posters and this and that. And, you know, there was a time when it was very fashionable for this. So for so for the packaging deduction, if you've got a single sleeve, that's one thing. If you've got a gatefold sleeve, that's something else. I can remember that uh, Yes is Fragile came with a booklet inside that had, you know, like 10 pages of photographs of the band and, and everything else like that. And all that costs money. And the record company says, well, we're just not going to pay on that kind of stuff. So here's how we're going to do it.
2: What is the equivalent of like the packaging deduction in digital Goods. Well, they, I have a couple theories about it, but but I'd like to hear what you what you think or what you hear or what you've seen.
1: Uh, well, I think it's indefensible. There is no packaging deduction for a digital file. I mean, a digital file is mm-hmm. a digital file. It goes out, it comes back, it goes around the world. There's no packaging deduction for it.
2: But do, do people still take a packaging but deduction? Up, do they still take a package? Do people
1: still take a packaging deduction? I have heard, you know, since I am no longer, you know, have skin in the game, I still hear that, that sometimes they're insisting on a packaging deduction because sometimes like with uh, a recent Maroon 5 album, it came with a digital booklet, but that digital booklet costs nothing to produce. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. not like every time we got to print it, we're incurring a cost. It's a digital file. And it's a digital file that goes around the world 15 times in 15 seconds. So... Uh yeah, I, I have a good friend who calls, you know, there, there was a time, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but there was a time when they were still trying to get a packaging deduction on a digital file and he said, called it indefensible, which is what it is. Yeah.
0: So let's move on to the last big topic that we're going to be talking about today. And that is the Mechanical and Control Composition's Clause. David, as a recording artist and songwriter, why don't you explain what a control composition clause is and why it's important?
2: Well, so when I signed a record deal um, in 1987, just so you know how old I am, uh, with uh, Virgin Records, um, they signed me as a recording artist. And the idea was I was supposed to produce sound recordings for them. Now, I happen to be a songwriter as well, too. And so were the other guys in my band. We were all songwriters. So we wrote our own songs, but those are two separate pieces of intellectual property the song in abstract, the composition, and the sound recording. So the record company is basically commissioning you to make these sound recordings, but you're also making copies of these compositions. Now, the record company is investing in me as an artist and performer, my songs are kind of not really that valuable without their investment in me as a performer. So the record company essentially demands a discount on what they have to pay to access my songs, right? And so that's, enters a very important part of the recording contract at least in my experience it is is something called the controlled composition clause essentially what are the rules of the game on the songs that you write now if you cover somebody else's song outside of the band these rules don't apply but on the songs that you write there are a lot of rules and discounts essentially that the record company gets, but I'll let Steve explain it better, I think.
1: Okay, you're gonna run into two problem areas in this clause. The first is the mechanical cap, which the record company will agree only to pay you on songs in the controlled composition area up to a maximum of a certain number. And this is where your definitions come back into play. And I think I mentioned this at the top. If you're required to deliver 12 songs on an album as part of your delivery commitment, you should not be required to give up a mechanical cap that says, we're only going to pay you on 10. If you're going to ask me for 12, you need to pay me on 12. Okay. Now who's responsible for this an and of? afraid it's the band Chicago, not the city, the band. Their first three albums were double albums, two vinyl record albums each. Their fourth album was a four-album set. And at that point, the record companies decided that they didn't want to pay more on more than 10 compositions. And that was about average for a vinyl album. You got about five songs on the side. So 10 compositions was uh, added in as the cap. But again, watch your delivery commitment. Make sure that you're not required to deliver to the record company more songs than they're willing to pay you in the mechanical cap. Now, the danger is that if you have a cover song on your record, right, that cover song is going to be likely demanding the full statutory rate. So... If that is more than your cap allows, you're going to face a reduction on the other songs that you've delivered because of what we call the mechanical rate cram down. And it's kind of a pejorative term, but it comes from a, a patent law and patent damages. What they say is on a song that you either wrote, co-wrote, or somehow own, we're only going to pay you 75% of the statutory rate in effect at the time that you signed the contract. So that means your 9.1 cents, which has been the statutory rate since how long, David? 2008 isn't it? Uh something like that. Oh, for, for yeah. a long time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 12
2: years now, and we're the proposal is to. Oh, by the way, um, we should mention this for those of you who don't know this yet. Um the songwriter royalty rate for physical copies is actually a rate that's set by the copyright Royalty board in the Library of Congress uh, copyright office. Um, and so that's actually set by law, but then you can negotiate the labels can negotiate it downwards. So that's what you know they're trying to do the compulsory license is push that rate down. but if it's a cover song, that, you know, the, the writer of that cover song isn't governed by your recording contract. So they're going to get the full rate. Right. And that's what, that's what happens. So it has to get taken out of your
1: already other reduced rate on your, on your songs that you wrote yourself. Right. So here's the situation you find yourself in as an artist. You are capped at 10 songs and 75% of statutory on those songs. You cover a song or two, but the person who wrote that song is not gonna take 75% of 9.1 cents. They're gonna want the whole thing. It's worse if the song goes on for a while, like Freebird or something like that, in which you're over the five minute mark and a higher statutory rate would apply. I had this happen to me on a jazz artist who I happened to represent where he did a cover of another jazz song and it ran for 17 minutes. Well, that had the effect of squashing all of his other compositions that were on this record down to something not very nice. Of course, it was also unhelpful that the record company charged a full freight mechanical on Happy Birthday because they own the publishing that own Happy Birthday, even though the melody to Happy Birthday is in the public domain. no amount of my screaming and yelling changed their little hearts on that account. So what you're facing with is, again, you got the mechanical cap, 10 songs, 12 songs, whatever it is. And then you have the mechanical rate crammed down, which is 75% of the statutory rate. One of the points that you could argue when negotiating this is you say you want it on the date of sale, not the date of contract. Um, because at that point, you know, the statutory rate was increasing in minuscule fractions of cents every couple of years, but hasn't since as David put it out, 2008. But if we ever get to that point where the mechanical rate is now set at something higher and is going to go up and perhaps, God willing, index the consumer price index, then you're going to want to say, I want to be paid, you know, even my crummy statutory, 75% of statutory rate on the rate that it is now not when I signed the contract, because again, I, you know, I have this famous jazz artist and he's getting paid 2.1 cents on his compositions because that's what the statutory rate was in 1978. So you, you, you got to beware on this one. And this one, this one is, is a big one to beware on because going back to the front, which we didn't really discuss, you know, the money that the record company gives you to make the records, you have to pay back to them. David alluded to this when he said we were unrecouped, Okay. If your attorney knows what they're doing and is smart, they will keep your mechanical royalties separate from your general duty to pay back the advances. Because if you're what they call cross-collateralized with your mechanicals, you're going to be screwed. Sorry.
2: So so the cram down, let me describe, let me give an example of how specifically how that works. So um, I believe I had a 10 song cap on my Virgin record, I had a 10 song. So, you know, I get an artist royalty, but now we're talking about my songwriting royalties, right? Which is a separate stream. So I had a, I believe it was a 10 song cap um, on the songs on my record that I would be paid on, right? So I believe at, some point it worked out to being 54 cents in mechanical royalties that i would get paid on my songs whether i put 10 songs on the record or whether i put 15 songs on the record i was just going to be paid 54 cents on the album right but when we were recording uh one of the albums um we just kind of just while we were sort of getting the sounds and getting the studio set up and stuff like that we were playing a song by uh jerry garcia and robert hunter called loser And uh, just kind of jamming on it, and it just, it was really cool. And it ended up being, uh, even though it was like a rough mix, we kept coming back to it. We were like, "Let's, let's put this song on the record, right? So it was a cover. Now, it was a six and a half minute song. So not only is... This is the federal law says not only is it a 9.1 cents or whatever the rate was then, not only is it a 9.1 cent song, cause it's an outside writer, doesn't get reduced, right? But we're gonna put an additional couple pennies on there because of the length of the song. Cause over a certain length, you got more, more, a larger mechanical, so somehow this becomes a 12 cent song, right? So now we have a number of songs on our record. I've got a cap that works out to 54 cents, but now I have a cover on this record. So 12 cents has to be paid to the outside writers. So that's going to come out of my cap, right? So that brought my mechanical rate, uh, my mechanical pool, pool, mechanical royalties, my songwriting pool down to 42 cents right? Um, and that was a problem for a long time. Eventually, uh, you know, uh, things were renegotiated with those records and, and such. And, you know, I got some rights back and stuff like that. Now I get paid kind of full fare on these things, although most of it's streaming. But for a long time, that was kind of a, you know, sort of like, uh, I wish we thought of it at the time that we were going to reduce our songwriting royalties so much, especially because that record recouped everything that had come before it and then, you know, went on and sold like, you know, a million copies. Right. So that was actually a pretty expensive cover for us to make. You know, if you put a cover on an album that doesn't recoup or you don't really sell many copies of, it's not really a big problem, but that was a lot of money that went out for that song. Right. Yes. Nick, what else?
0: Well, real quickly, um, for the R.O.S. watch, if anyone who hasn't listened to Series 1 yet just recently found this, um, in Series 1 we did do a Mechanical Royalties episode uh, with Crispin Hunt of the Irish Academy. So check that out if you're interested. Um, it goes a little bit more deeper into the mechanicals and control composition causes. Um But another question that I have is... So we talked a lot about artists making money from the records. However, record labels are also trying to make money from records and 360 deals have become a trend in recent times. Stephen, could you briefly explain to listeners what a 360 deal is and your thoughts on how it's beneficial for an artist?
1: Well, the 360 deal means that there is one entity and it not, is not necessarily the record company. It could be a management company that controls every aspect of the artist's career. It serves as the record company. It serves as the management company. It serves as the merchandising company and everything concerned with the artist's career. I personally disfavor the 360 deal because I feel that it's an inherent conflict of interest. So, okay, you don't like your record company. Who's going to go for, you know, to bat for you with the record company? Well, your manager except your manager is the record company. So they're not gonna fire themselves and are they really gonna do an effective job you know, representing you? Does this person who claims to be your record company and manager have a lot of experience at either? Are they just a manager? Have they ever been a record company before? If they're a record company, have they ever been an artist management before? Have they ever been a concert promoter before? Do they know what's involved in staging a, a, a rock and roll uh, you know, concert tour? Do they know how to do these things? Or are they really just sort of taking your money? And especially on the merchandise end, merchandise can be very, very lucrative. Have they ever been a merchandising company? Do they know how to do it? Do they Do not know what sells? But they want their fingers in that pie. And, you know, generally, unless they're, you know, super duper Irving Azoff kind of people, I, a band comes to me with a 360 deal and I tell them not to do it because of that particular problem. If you're the person who the 360 deal is signed to really knows what they're doing, it's great. But if they haven't got all those bases covered, they're gonna screw up and you can't fire them because the same person is in charge of all of the facets of that. And I could kill Madonna for signing one of those things, but unfortunately I don't get that close to her.
0: And David, do you have any experience with 360?
2: Well, I haven't really, except for in the sense that oftentimes a lot of those things that I put out are essentially on my own label and my manager is my wife. My wife has actually been in the music business for a long time, actually, so she's pretty capable of doing this. And so in a way, my band and my bands is sort of a record label. It is kind of a 360 deal, but it's with myself. So it makes more sense now The I have, I have, um, I, I can't say the names of the artists, but there's two artists that I know that have done 360 deals. And one was, was a very negative. had a very negative experience because yes, it was like the record label didn't really wasn't good at managing or doing tours and stuff like that. Another artist though, had a number of big hits and then just kind of had you know they sort of went up had a peak and then it sort of dropped back down and then they just hit a plateau and they've kind of had a plateau for a couple decades right and their 360 deal was kind of more oriented around tours live shows and oh yeah here's a record right and it actually kind of worked for them but it was really kind of an exclusive kind of touring deal and you know and there was a new record every couple of years you know that went along with a tour uh but but you know there, there weren't any hits on those records right they were bought by the fans you know bought by the folks who came to the concerts you know and stuff like that but you know they they weren't getting any any real promotional value out of it so i would say any in some situations it can be okay but yes it's 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 crazy and and the you know the other the last thing i want to say is about the 360 deals remember management if you don't know this management fees are calculated in a, in a really interesting way they're calculated at gross right so at least the record company you know they're selling records they sort of got to make a profit on it stuff like that right a manager is paid on the gross of live concert revenue, right? So they make money, they make like 15 or 20 percent of your concert gross, whether that tour really makes much of a profit at all, right? So that's the main problem to me with those 360 deals is giving up that huge chunk of your live revenue at gross before your expenses is is strikes me as usurious, you know, like it's just it's it's not a good interest. It's like paying an outrageous interest rate or something, you know, on a credit card or payday loan.
1: Well again, it's 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 a conflict of interest. You know, they've mm-hmm. got their fingers in all the pies and they don't necessarily have the expertise to handle all those pies. So
2: that's right.
0: And a question that reaches to both of you have either of you experienced Any unordinary clauses or uncommon clauses? Any funny stories about record contracts?
1: Yeah. um, I was negotiating a deal for a heavy metal band on a real hard metal headbanging kind of label. And in that, they had royalty provisions for eight-track tapes and reel-to-reel tapes. And I said, come on. I said, you got to be kidding me. Reel-to-reel tapes? Eight tracks, nobody buys that stuff anymore, and they said, "Yeah, we know, but you know, don't worry about it." But there was a royalty provision on what the band would earn on a reel-to-reel tape sale, so that that was that was funny. You never know when it's going to come back, you know. <laughs> no, no,
2: I, I've got to sing the praises of reel-to-reels, though, for just one second, though. i learned my father was in the air force, and so you know, these Columbia record clubs had a reel-to-reel type division right and he had to go lots of places that it wasn't really practical to bring vinyl but for whatever reason I guess these guys always had reel to these GIs always had reel to reel tape recorders I think they wouldn't warp they in shipment I don't know what the deal was but they were totally into reel to reels so a lot of my early years of listening to music was off of Reel to Reels, listening to classic records off of Reel to Reels. What a what a great format. If you were like my dad, a little bit of a, you know, a nerd, you know, you align the azimuth on your reel to reel and you put on the test tape every once in a while and demagnetize the heads and stuff like that. It was a it was a glorious listening experience. So maybe one day it will come back.
1: Yeah, well, there's a, a certain uh, area of music enthusiasts who like to putter around and tinker with stuff, and I kind of think that's what's sort of behind the resurgence of vinyl because you have to fuss with it. You know, yeah. you had to have your 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 disc. What do they call that? The stuff that took the dust off the. Yeah, the disc brush. What was it called? The disc. What was yeah. it called? You have that, and you had to clean the records, and you had to have them in static-proof sleeve. Oh.
2: Yeah, you had to get rid of the stock sleeves. I mean, you stuffed
1: them in the vinyl, yeah. right,
2: the in sure the, in the gatefold done. sleeve, but then you bought these special uh, static, uh, anti-static sleeves or whatever at Rhino Records or whatever, you know, whatever your look, record store was. Yeah, yeah and, I,
1: and I had a turntable that had a special head that had zero tracking error on it. So. Yeah. Abnormally wear the grooves down on the records. And- oh, you had a linear
2: tracking turntable, which actually, yeah, yeah. I still have my techniques one around here. Well, I swear one day I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah,
1: so you know that that kind of thing where people ha- like to have to fuss with things. You know, that's mm-hmm. I, and 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 plus, I think the you know there is the satisfaction of of owning the physical object. You know, having an album, you can look at it, you hold it in your hands. It's got pictures. Hopefully it's got lyrics on the sleeve and things like that that you just, you don't get that same experience with, okay, here's a download and there's a digital booklet that goes with it about the band. It's not quite the same experience. (laughs) You know, I had all sorts of loopy things. I had a, a, a copy of Steely Dan Gold that was pressed on gold vinyl, um, and I also had a uh, a single from the New Zealand band the Split Ends, who Neil Finn later formed Crowded House. He's probably known better for that, but it was a laser etched single that had musical notes etched into the vinyl of it that shimmered when you sh- when you shook it and all sorts of weird things. You know, I've got Leonard skinner picture discs and all sorts of all sorts of stuff. That was it was it was fun. To, it was fun to collect. So, but uh, pictures other 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 than you know real real tapes, I can't think of anything truly funny that I've ever encountered in a, in a recording contract. Well, uh, I, I, Your picture disc
2: thing reminded me of one, which was this is when I was a producer, but when you're a producer, sometimes you get to know what's in a artist's recording contract. And uh, one of the things that I was told to do, so so a producer generally delivers, Uh, The label copy, which is all the information about a record who played on it, what you were doing, you know, just all the stuff that doesn't necessarily go on the album art, but it's sort of a document that you give to the record label in the label copy uh, clause, I was supposed to take a picture of everybody who worked on the record whether they were like a backing vocalist somebody came and play a shaker part if they were second engineer that sat in for one day they wanted a picture of everybody on the uh on the record with the name i have no idea why
1: <laughs> <laughs> so i had to
2: i had a i bought a polaroid camera and anybody who worked on it was like you know you really picked
1: of yourself, david a
2: polaroid camera I had a Polaroid camera just so I could snap their picture, write their name
1: on the bottom and put it in the envelope. Does anybody born after the year 1995 know what a Polaroid camera is? Sure, they do. Outside they're, of, of A3,000, maybe.
0: Hey, well, yeah. I was born after the year 1995 and I know what a Polaroid camera okay. is.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's true because they're kind of a novelty.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's fair. Um, But while I'm listening to you guys talk about Um, consuming music in this age um, I always find it super amusing listening to people older than me uh, talk about this because to me someone who's been growing up in the age of iTunes like I've never had to deal with any of this Um, and I just find it super funny uh, when people are talking about this and it really makes them feel old uh, when I tell them that I have no idea what any of this is, but I do know what a Polaroid camera is.
1: People, people have, have record have record collections that would, you know, span the, the the width of a wall, you know? And, you know, when your your favorite artist was coming out with a new record, this was time for excitement. I can remember uh, when uh, Stevie Wonder came out with uh, songs in the key of life that Motown kept, kept taking out ads, in 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 billboards saying we're almost done we're almost done we're almost done and when it finally came out not only was a two record set but there was a 45 with additional songs on it that that, that had yeah. to go out right and yeah. it was it, it was you know just incredible but i i will give some props over to the modern technology one of my favorite bands of all time is yes and i could never get a vinyl copy of the song roundabout that didn't have pops and scratches and ticks in this wonderful intro in which Rick Wakeman is playing a grand piano, but it's recorded backwards. So it starts from nothing and then builds to a crescendo. And I remember the first time I heard that on the radio, I said, like, what the hell is that? What, what just happened You know, on my radio, right? But there are all these pops and cracks and this and that. And now with digital, it's blissfully silent. I will also right. say for, uh, for digital, I like having my entire record collection in my pocket. I think my iTunes file has got about maybe 2,500 songs in it. And my my aged mind says, not only do I know 2,500 songs that I actually like, how many more songs are stuck in my mind that I don't like? I mean, is Kung Fu Fighting still in my brain someplace, waiting to escape or Sugar Sugar? Or uh, I've got love in my tummy, you know. You know all these other horrible novelty hits that I can still remember that I don't like, but I've got twenty five hundred songs that I do like, and I, I I like the convenience of having it in my pocket and plugging it in my car, and my car stereo is as good as my home stereo. That's good. That's right. That's
0: right. Well, to close out, Stephen. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, could you say a couple things, couple final things on? What honors to look out for when being handed a record contract, any advice for them that you could give them? That would be great.
1: Yes, absolutely. Have an attorney who's experienced in the music business, look at the contract or have a really kick butt manager who knows what they're doing, because just from the sections that I read to you, you will have no idea what they're saying in the contract. And, you know, I know in the age of the Internet, I I hear this all the time. Well, you know, you know, especially in the area of copyright licensing, it's like, well, I can get a license online. I say, yeah, you can. But do you understand what it says? And the answer is, well, I think I do. And the answer is, no, you probably don't. But, you know, I find it incredible that you said that you reviewed a 12 page recording agreement. If I was handed a 12-page recording agreement, I'd probably tell the artist it's not worth my time reading it because it's not going to be any good. The amount of stuff that would be left out of a 12-page recording agreement would be, you know, Mount Mount Everest, right? And again, you know, the one that I looked at before I, I came on to talk to you, it was a major recording, and it probably ran 80 to 90 pages of single space type. And if you think you can read 80 to 90 pages in single space type and understand what's going on and what they're doing and why they're doing it, as an artist, you are sorely mistaken. So if somebody hands you a recording contract, you need to hand that off to an experienced entertainment attorney or an experienced manager to negotiate that puppy on your behalf. I guess my thing that I would say
2: is, and you alluded to it earlier, I don't know I think there's a catchphrase, and I don't get it. I'm, I'm probably not going to get it right, but it's something like, uh, you know, what, what the front of the contract gives you, the definitions take away. Is that? The, I, I haven't got it quite right, right? But what, they, what they give to you
1: on page four, they take away on page forty-four.
2: Okay. Yes. So you don't know, you know, generally when you're artists, you don't really know how to read one of these contracts but have a look at the definitions. <laughs> See what the definitions are. You could learn a lot. You learn a lot about the vibe of your contract, right? By looking at the definitions, yeah, right?
1: You've heard the expression, the devil's in the details and the recording agreements, the devil's in the definitions. That's yeah. where it's all gonna happen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Artists Rights Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if you'd like to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Artists Rights or on Facebook at Artists Rights Watch, or you can check out our website at artistsrightswatch.com. If you missed that or you want more information on this episode, please check out the show notes for further research. We will catch you again next time where we watch for Artists Rights. Cheers.